being one of the most legendary gambling Twitter posters of all time. Dean's content is always much more uh, about the game of basketball itself rather than the gambling. Did you get into gambling first? And then as scouting became useful for gambling, started getting more serious about evaluating basketball players? Or have you always been doing that? Um, I wouldn't say I was ever really serious about evaluating basketball players. Like the drafting, I, I don't really get anything out of it. I don't like make any money. I don't, I'm not trying to get a job or anything. I was sure, always- But a- you also bet on basketball for a living, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah, there yeah. must be some overlap in skills between the two. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so basically what happened actually is I was a gambler first and um, I started by making money on prop betting and um, you know, obviously it's a great place to start. It's a lot easier than beating any other market. Uh, but then at a certain point I was like, okay, you know, I need to switch to something more sustainable than props. So I started trying to bet college basketball and my first year doing it for like the first couple months, I just had no idea what I was doing and it was very difficult. So at a certain point I just, decided to just take a break and start writing about basketball because I was posting a lot about, um, you know, the draft on uh, the 2 plus 2 uh, forum for sporting events. And then I just took a break from gambling, just started writing about the draft for a couple of weeks. And then, um, you know, a lot of people liked it. They gave me good feedback. And then I came back to gambling and it gave me kind of a fresh perspective on it. And then that was when I started winning. So in a certain way, they, they do go hand in hand. Like the draft, I think, kind of sharpens my gambling mindset. But it's mostly just a hobby, and it's like, oh well, I you know I generate all these ideas. I may as well just share them with the public. Why not? So when you're betting college basketball, are you what percentage of like the team's minutes are you watching? Is that any part of your betting or not really? Uh, I think it always helps when I can, but I mean, there's just so many games and so many teams. Like I'll, I'll try, I'll try to, I'll try to watch what, whatever whatever games I have action on. But a lot of times I'll have like action on seven or eight games that are all happening at once. And I can kind of only halfway watch like maybe two or three of them at once. So I'd say probably like, I don't know, 5%. It's mostly, it's mostly statistically driven. Okay. So would you say that like the style of play of a player, like if you had a take on Trey young, were you against Oklahoma as well or not really? It's more just a mapping from one to the other. You don't think it'll work. I was actually in favor of Trey young because and part of the reason I went against them is because they kept performing badly. Cause I was like, man, this team last year, all they, they had not really a point guard. I mean, they had uh, Jordan Woodard for half the year and then they, they, they really needed a point guard. And it felt like, all right, they got Trey young. This guy can score. He can pass. He seemed like the missing piece. I thought they were going to be really good. And they just kept losing all these conference games. And then I, I wasn't really betting them that much at that time. I kind of stepped back and I was like, wait, hold on. Like, why this guy's posting crazy stats and the team isn't even getting better. Like what's the problem with him? And that was kind of led to a lot of my draft skepticism regarding him. Gotcha. So what are you, are you betting only college basketball? Is there anything else you're betting? Uh, yeah, I bet, I bet MMA. Um, I'm not as good at MMA betting as college basketball. Once in a blue moon, I'll bet a college football game, like maybe like once every two years. So are you like breaking down the MMA fights, the Dean on MMA? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just, how does MMA betting work? Are you like, take me through that. Um, I mean, I have a statistical model, um, that, uh, one of my friends helped me build. I, I got into it after, uh, Floyd fought Connor and I threw like my biggest bet ever was betting on Floyd. I actually started getting in it like minus 500 and then I added more when he hit minus 400 later and, uh, that one, I thought that was fun. So I had my friend. Uh, help build me a, a statistical model, which um, I don't know, it's just that's just that's just kind of a starting point, and then um, after that, I'll just kind of watch film and do some analysis and just try to. I, I mean, ba- basketball st- styles matter matter in basketball, but it still is much less impactful than MMA, where styles really make fights. And one guy could just be better than the other guy, but it just happened to match up badly and lose more often than not. So um, yeah, after that, it's just, you know, review the fights, you know, watch the tape and just see if, you know, the, 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 if, you know, the model is onto something and it's like, yeah, this, this, uh, this guy is an underdog, but the model says it's a coin flip. He should, he should be able to win a decent amount of the time or, you know, it's no, it's just a bad stylistic matchup and I don't like it. 
how long is the MMA betting season? It's all year. I mean, there's. So are you, are you there's, doing like multiple bets daily all year? Or no, you got ten no, bets no, no, a week. No. Or I something? Can, like one MMA bet a month because there's there's like fights every weekend, but there's only like ten to twelve UFC fights per weekend. So maybe like, or almost every weekend. So maybe like forty or fifty fights per month, and maybe I'll just bet like once or twice per month because. I can't I can't play a numbers game with that. Like I can't with college basketball because my, my intuition's not as refined. I didn't start watching it until I was, you know, five years ago. Whereas basketball I've been watching it my whole life. So I have a much sharper uh, intuition. So where does the intuition come in in the basketball though? Do you like override the the model on some things or if you can you like that on some I don't stuff have a model. My, my intuition is the model. For college basketball? Yeah. Okay. Like, I, I like rate every team, but I do it all manually. And I look at stats and I, I try to be statistical, but I base, basically, I've been watching basketball and looking at stats and kind of interpolating the eye test and stat statistics in my mind since I was in like grade school or maybe high school is when I really got into stats. Um, so at a certain point, I just kind of learned to kind of merge them in my mind in a, a somewhat precise way that's only gotten sharper over time. So I guess that's kind of given me a, 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 a unique edge because, you, you know, in, in a lot of ways, models would save a lot of effort and they would be more consistent, but there, there's always kind of a hole in the vision of the model. And I feel like the human mind, it's, it's not as precise in certain ways, but in other ways it can kind of account for all the little points that might, it's not going to have as many blind spots. So, um, I felt like that's really helped me. It, I know it doesn't normally work for most people because most people's intuition is just not good enough. But for me, it's just helped me get really good ROIs on college basketball. So it's day one of the college basketball season and we've got the games posted. There's 80 games or whatever. How many will you be betting on? And how are you coming to those bets then? Is it like you want to target some matchup that you think is leaning one way or the other, or you just look through all 80 lines and it's like these seven are wrong and bet those seven or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I have my EVs for every team and uh, I'll just look at the lines and see what line is wrong. And then for some of them, maybe it'll just be a team. I don't care that much about like a random low major that I didn't put much thought into. And I'm like, eh, do I really trust this rating or some I'll consider the matchup a little bit, but matchup is lower priority um, than like, whether basically the quality of teams and how many points apart they are. Um, so yeah, I'll just look at everything and just decide, you know, how confident I am in my EVs compared to the market. And then I'll pick some bets and I don't know, maybe make five to 10 bets um, depending on, uh, you know, what the market gives. So let's say Kansas is four points above North Carolina in your mind model and they're playing and it's a pick. So you bet on Kansas and then North, it's the first game of the season and North Carolina wins by 27. Um, are you then like mid game revising the numbers or are you like this player's way worse than I thought, but they're going to bench him. How does the, I assume the next time they play you, they wouldn't be four point favorites or how are you adjusting the. I don't numbers? adjust my numbers. I don't adjust my numbers at all because honestly, I don't have that level of statistical expertise. I just keep the same priors and I just kind of trade around them. And for me, I, I would just look into that and I would be like, all right, either Kansas was has a lot of flaws that I wasn't anticipating and they seem like a broken team and I just don't want to bet them at all. Or maybe I would say, all right, you know, I think that that was a lot of bad variants. I think they can do better. And maybe I would look to buy, buy the dip next time. So um, that's where, where, where the intuition comes in, where it's like a lot, a lot of most of my college basketball betting is just like, do I want to bet on regression to the mean here? Is this line this like is a lot of time it gets really messy when you're like five six seven games in the season and the lines are you know all 10 points away from my priors and it's like all right is regression to the mean gonna happen here or was i just flat out wrong and i don't want to touch this okay so before the season starts then are you like doing a deep dive on every single team so that the number you come to before day one is like i feel pretty damn good that this is going to be right unless something drastic changes fundamentally. So that's why you keep them the same? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, I, I'm not 
really ever that confident in anything because it's just so much fluidity in college it's just so random and the information is just so limited but yeah i'm just saying that like you know based on the coach and the players and all the information that i have this is how good i think this team should be on average so um you know and i think just just having strong priors is is so important because there's a there's a lot of people in college basketball who are trying to react off of just a few games, uh, make strong reactions. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And um, for me, my favorite bets are always on regression to the mean when it's going to happen. How are you timing the market when you're making the bets? Is it all like kind of right before the game starts or, you know what I mean? How did, if there's not really a, if you're feeling your way through the bet, how does that, it's also an intuitive. It it's also an intuitive thing. Sometimes they'll be like, you yeah. just kind of get in the zone, meditate, see all the things, and start. Yeah, it's like sometimes. Sometimes it just depends where the limits are when they go up. Some, sometimes there'll be a line. It's just too good to be true, and I'm just sitting there, just waiting for 10 a.m. to come around and the limits to uh, 10, 10 a.m. Eastern on, on day, game day for for the limits to just go up to like 5k on um, Bookmaker and 5k on Bet Online and just smash it. Other times I'm like, yeah, you know what? I think this is a pretty good bet, but I just feel like I deserve another half point or a point. Sure. So I'm just going to chill. And I'm going to sit on it. I'm going to wait because for the most part, I'm not really thriving that much on closing line value. Um, I'm thriving on beating the closing lines. Uh, that's right. I would I'm think doing. that you might maybe it's possible you could lose on the CLV, you know, if if you did, weren't careful, if you were just kind of. Well, well actually, actually, last year, all, all my biggest bets were when I, I, I bet and then the line moved against me like a half a point or a point and I just bet more and more and more <laughs> uh, when I was like, all right, you know, I, I, don't, I think I'm right. I think the market's wrong and I just kept adding. How closely are you keeping in touch with, um, how much are you getting involved in injury games where a player may or may not be playing? Are you ever ahead of the market on those? Like you feel confident someone on, you know, Binghamton is going to play or or do you really do you stay away from that sort of stuff? Um, I mean, I, I don't try to get an edge on it. The, the injury information is just so frustrating in college basketball. And for me, I just try to just take it and just price in, like, price in, like, all right, I think this player makes the team a point worse. So he's going to play 50% of the time. So I guess for now, I'll make it a half point shift and then we'll, we'll, I'll just try to check up on news. But I'm never ahead of the curve on injury. I don't want to get information before anybody else. Yeah. Um, where, what sorts of teams do you usually differ the most from the market on? You would think that um, if the market was kind of doing their thing with something similar and you're doing something different but consistent, um, are there any sort of consistent like macro over undervalued things you think kind of exist in the market? Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I try not to think about that too much because the problem with looking for, for kind of patterns is – it can get you in this headspace where you're just looking for shortcuts. And then when you start looking too much for shortcuts, especially for me, when I don't have a model and it's all intuitive, I'm looking for shortcuts, 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 you can get kind of lazy and sloppy. So I just try, kind of try to have my ratings and just, um, you know, take what comes my way um, and not really kind of focus. Cause there, there are all sorts of different uh, types of stuff. Like I, I do like betting on regression to the mean, but sometimes, um, there, there will be a, the, a team that's really hot and they will be playing a, another team that's hot. And I just think, well, this team's hotness is realer. So I'm going to bet on this team, you know? So it's, it, it varies. Every bet's different. And would you say that that feeling of knowing there's going to be hotness comes mostly from the team preview before the season starts from knowing about the specific players that are maybe missing all their shots or playing poorly or something that might regress? or a coach or like at what level is the sort is obviously some sort of all, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it just, it just comes from everything, you know, that it's just always valuing all information. Like, you know, I believe in this coach or this one team's running hot or this one team has a player that I wasn't sure on who turned out to be really good who, or it, um, or maybe this one team is just beating up on teams that I thought were, were overrated anyway. So they're getting too much credit for beating up on a few overrated teams. So it could be anything. And it's just kind of always just looking at all the information and just trying to harmonize it as best I can. 
Have you ever tried to bet on the NBA as well or other sorts of international basketball or any other basketball leagues besides CBB? Uh, I did a little, a little light betting on FIBA um, just now. I bet, um, I bet on Germany plus five versus Greece, which uh, won. Oh, like today? Uh, no, 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 no. It was like a few weeks ago um, when Franz Wagner was playing Giannis uh, Atsukumbo. And then, uh, so, so, so Germany, they, they made a lot of threes and they won by like 12 points or something, 11 or 12 points. And then uh, I was going to bet Spain versus, then Spain was plus four and a half versus uh, Germany in the next game. And then I kind of switched sides to Spain, but I, I didn't get that much down because I was on my way to uh, a meditation retreat and I had terrible internet. So I kept trying to get my VPN to log into Pinnacle, but I was in like in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So I didn't get to bet that much. I didn't get to bet, to bet, bet that much on either game, to be honest. But I'll mess with FIBA on occasion, sometimes NBA playoffs a little bit. But my, my main life source is college basketball. How was the meditation retreat? It's terrible, man. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lot of work. It's a lot of work. I don't really believe in everything that Vipassana preaches. Um, I think a lot of it is kind of unnecessary. But What was that, uh, Vipassana? Yeah, it's called Vipassana Meditation Retreat. There's like, uh, you can sign up for it. There's uh, retreats all over the world. And it's like a 10-day program where it's silent. They take away your phone. You can't talk. And um, the, the idea is, is you're, you're changing the habit pattern of your mind. So you can't, don't really react to things as much, which is, you know, worth something. But it, it doesn't, it only lasts for like, maybe like a few months after the retreat. Um, and they, they preach a lot of things that I, I don't really agree with. Um but it really helps me clear my mind. So I do feel very good right now. And I, for it's, you know, I kind of just did it because, you know, it's like college basketball season is coming. You know, I have to have my intuition as sharp as possible because that makes all of the decisions. So it definitely always helps my betting. So it's a very big 10 day grind, but it'll help me make money. Is this the first time you've done that before college basketball? Um, yeah, I've done it like maybe in like June or, I did it before NCAA tournament once, but never like right before November, which is kind of crazy because November is when I really make most of my money. Why do you think November is when you make most of your money? You would think that as the season goes on, your priors would start to differ the most from the market and that there'd be more edges or is it because there's so many, it's hard to find the well, better well, it's ones? Also, well, it's also because like once, once the sample of, of games gets bigger, uh, first of all, what like the priors that are accurate or people are caught up on. So the teams that I like that people didn't know were good, now everybody knows they're good. And also it's like once there's 30, 30 games into the season, my priors aren't going to be as valuable because 30, 30 games is a pretty pretty um, non-trivial sample. So like after like three or four or five games, yeah, there's going to be a much more better odds of regressing than the mean. Once the sample gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the, the actual games that have happened are probably more indicative of the mean than my priors. What do you think of the idea of a team gelling throughout the season that the same players might be better on game 11 than game one, um, even though they're all the same goodness, but kind of, you know, they kind of, they warm up together or they're, even though we, nothing is new about them, they might be better in the future. Or are you like each team when they're playing together should be X level of goodness or that's their potential or something? Oh yeah, there's there's definitely that gelling that happens, but I guess that's also kind of part of my frustration with, with trying to bet bet a lot of like mid and late season stuff is you, you definitely do want to put a premium on the teams that are gelling versus the teams that peaked earlier. But when you're just looking at the box scores, it still is a little bit harder to discern when you don't have the time to actually sit down and watch and see what they're doing differently. Do you think that the so-called finals effect might be real that certain college basketball players may do better or worse depending on if they've had finals or are studying for finals or um you know that sort of thing like some teams in, in december and january might be on longer breaks than others uh i don't know i haven't really thought about that uh, I, I doubt it really matters that much i mean i would say that most of these kids are probably just trying to like coach through their finals and really focus more on basketball yeah. What are there any sort of like qualitative sorts of sides that you like in general? Team coming off a big rest or back to back or an older team, younger team, taller team, shorter team? Um, not really. I mean, I have my teams that I think you know. I like these coaches. I like their style of play. I like the co the, the players they get. So I have my teams that I'm 
somewhat consistently like looking to bet on, or maybe if it's down year, it's like I'll bet on them or I'll pass. Whereas other teams, it's either fade or pass. But um, no, not not really strong patterns. I'm pretty much open to anything as long as the market's wrong. What about dogs versus favorites? Um, any are you? kind of all over the map, sometimes big dogs, big faves, small dogs, oh, small faves. I'm, I'm, I'm a dog guy at the end of the day. I don't know why. I just do better betting dogs than favorites and pretty much everything. So uh, I'll still bet <laughs> favorites from time to time. Except um, Floyd uh, Mayweather or McGregor. Well, yeah, but, but Floyd was an obvious one because Floyd, <laughs> it's like there's an ESPN article where bookies are saying he should have been like minus 5,000. <laughs> well, what about when someone's playing Mississippi Valley State? Isn't that an obvious fave? Well, no, because Mississippi Valley State's going to be like a fifty-point underdog. <laughs> it's like, so it's like, well, it's you know, you're just guessing. Uh, it's a guessing game there. What um, do you think of those sorts of games? Is it possible that I, in my history of betting college basketball, I've definitely had more bets than normal on thirty-plus point dogs as opposed to thirty-plus point favorites, or whatever the extreme barrier is for that margin. Um, I think it's not that they're not good, that the market's giving them to me for a reason. Um, how do you think about like the difference between extreme one versus 16 type matchups or even more so when you get um, a top team playing a really bottom team? Yeah, I mean, those 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 are hard. I kind of, that, that's something where I feel like you kind of do have to get a little bit more qualitative and just see whether, you know, the team is playing a style where they're trying to run up the score. So might you look at historical, like how much they've been running it up or. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do look at that. Um, and, but the, those games are, are always kind of a, a little bit harder for me. I do prefer a little bit more of, you know, the games that are made, the spreads that are maybe more in the single digits or at least, you know, 10 or 11 or 12. When you get, once you get to the thirties, yeah, I will bet them. And I have bet a lot of like 30 point underdogs and 40 point underdogs, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a soft spot in the market because it seems like a pretty common mentality for any average fish to say, oh, 40 points, that's so many points. They're not going to win by that much. So I, I think that there can also be value on the favorites in those situations. And also, um, yeah, it's it's the, 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 those, are, those are really tough. It's, I'll bet them and I can find edge there, but it's a, a little bit fuzzier than the more competitive games. When you were in college at Duke, right? Yeah. Were you aware of college basketball betting or were you paying attention to the spreads? Was the Duke team good? Were you thinking about this sort of stuff then, even if abstractly? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I definitely remember before I started betting, I was aware of spreads. I, I wanted to be good at gambling and I just didn't think I was good enough. But I would still just, I, I wouldn't try to bet, but I would always look at the, the markets and I would look at spreads and I would think, well, maybe this is a good bet or maybe that's a good bet, but probably not because I'm just a stupid college kid and these markets are really sharp. So yeah, I would always think about it. Even even before college, I remember when I was like in, in maybe high school or maybe even junior high, I would always look in the newspaper for the NCAA tournament spreads and it would just see interesting stuff. Be like, oh, wow, this is like a 12 versus five matchup in the tournament. The 12 seed's only a two point underdog. Wow, that's crazy. So I was looking at spreads from a very young age. Do you think you do better um, in regards to there being younger players on the court versus older players in the court in college basketball, or does it not matter? Might the one and done era suit you better as you're able to um, make more off market opinions about low info players? Well, yeah, I think that the, the low info is what, what helps me a lot because uh, part of the reason I don't really bet NBA aside from the fact that it generally being sharper and harder is that, you know, you can't, I don't, I'm pretty sure you can't just beat the NBA off intuition when there's just such good data available that, you know, there's no way that my intuition can outperform a very high level data modeler who has, you know, a massive bankroll and is betting like a hundred K per game. You know, I, I just can't compete with that with my intuition, no matter how sharp it is. Whereas um, college basketball information is kind of trash and the kids are so young. There's so much variance from year to year. Um, that's where there's a lot more limits in the data. So there's only so far you can get from modeling it. And that's where my intuition is going to shine. So I think, yeah, in that regard, the youth really helps. Did you start with college basketball when you started gambling because it was the small market, like, like the next level up from props or because you already were developing some basketball intuition? Was it just a random pick? 
uh, it wasn't random. It was it was calculated. It was you know I like basketball. I was betting mostly basketball props too. So okay. it's like I, I like basketball. Um, I need uh you know find something else to win at, and there there, there aren't that many li- liquid basketball leagues. I mean, there's the WNBA, right. but I don't even watch women's basketball, and it's also very low limit. Um, like a lot of overseas stuff is very low limit. Um, there's just not much. There's just college and the NBA. And between college and the NBA. Uh, you know, I would look at NBA betters like Haralbos and read stories about him hiring some wizard from Goldman Sachs and Sachs and doing all this, you know, mo- advanced modeling. And I just felt like that's a lot for me to compete with. Um, and I do like watching the NBA more than college, but I just felt that, you know, college was just, it was just lower hanging fruit and I have better odds of winning there than the NBA. So, you know, I just decided to focus on it and I just, kept trying and trying and trying until I started finding edges. In the 30 days leading up to um, the beginning of the college season, say from October, whatever, 10th to November 10th, whatever day it starts, are you kind of working each day, finishing up all the numbers and previews, or are you done by then? Are you on easy street, just waiting to collect all the money on day one? What's your schedule before from day negative 30 to zero? Um, I'll have like, I basically just start by doing like right now I'm working on like my rough drafts and I'll probably finish all the rough drafts where I have like a rough estimate for every team, probably by around, you know, the 30th day before the season. And then after that, I'm just, I'm just reviewing everything coming over from coming over information and just kind of Googling, just trying to see if I can find a coach interview, kind of just any nugget of information. So I'll just be spending, you know, a couple hours a day, just trying to find whatever information I can to just sharpen whatever I have. Do you look at the schedule and like circle spots um, when you're going through these teams or not really? Uh, yeah, I do it a little bit. Um, I probably think it's kind of a bad habit because uh, it's like, well, I don't even know what the lines are yet. I don't really want to plan on betting stuff because there have been times where I'm just like, I'm like circle. I'm like, all right, these are the three games I'm going to bet. And then the, the lines are just like not even plus EV according to my odds. And it's like, oh, well, maybe my EV's were too passive maybe i should have made it different uh so but in those cases normally um it's not profitable to bet so i just kind of wait and then a lot of times it's just surprising it's like really this this is not a game i expected to bet but it's very wrong according to my ev so i guess i'm gonna bet it like so a lot of the teams that end up making me money being my most profitable teams to bet i'm not when i'm going over my evs i'm not thinking like oh yeah this this team looks like it's going to be plus ev i'm just like all right this looks like a team uh they're okay and then i the yeah. market ends up hating them and i'm like oh i don't hate this team i'll bet them okay do the words that a coach say ever uh, make you make any bets or change your mind about anything is there anything that a coach could say before the season starts let's say it's a new coach team or a coach is like, we're going to change it up um, and do this, or not really. Um, uh, not really. Uh, it's it's hard to. Say. I mean, I try to listen to what they say and I try to get value, but it still is hard to get much value. I mean, I remember last year, like, I was I'm I, I, I'm a fan of the Houston basketball program because they're pretty awesome. And I remember last year before the season, Kelvin Sampson was like in an interview saying, yeah, yeah, we're like way behind last season. And he was like blasting all his players. And I was like, oh, wow, I thought this team was getting pretty good, but maybe they're going to kind of struggle. But then they just came out and they had their like best season ever. And I feel like <laughs> a lot of times coaches just say things and you don't really know. Maybe he was just trying to like motivate his team more so than give useful information to the media. You know what I mean? Yeah. Would it, could it be that maybe he's sandbagging to like get the opponents to think that they're not that good or more so probably to just fire up his team? I think he's just trying to fire up his team. Maybe they probably, maybe, or maybe they, or maybe he was just frustrated in the moment. Maybe he's had like a, one or two bad practices and he's just like. What do you think would fire up the team more if you said something like that? Or if you said, I've got the strongest team I've ever had in my life. We're going to come out and run everyone over. Might, might that not fire them up as well? Uh, I think, I think if anything, uh, you know, people are gonna, well, I mean, it depends because it's, I think, it, I think it depends because, you know, if the, if the players are doing everything right in practice, you still don't want to be like a dick and tell them, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you guys are terrible. But on average, uh, you, you know, there, there's that rubber band theory. It's like, if a team, uh, has a bad first half then the second half line is going to price in some regression, you know? And I think on average, you know, you, you want to keep kids more so in the humble zone. You don't want to inflate their egos too much because that's going to 
And once you inflate somebody's ego, there's going to be risk of just underperformance. Are you ever betting on second half or live um, college basketball? Oh, all the time. All the time. A lot of times if there's a good bet, I just love to. One of my favorite things to do is just double down the second half. If I feel like we ran bad first half and I'm watching the game and it's, you know, it's not going well, but I feel like I still feel like I'm on the right side. I'll just add more second half and. My favorite thing is to have the comeback and the second half comeback and then the three game bets cover and you just scoop everything. <laughs> and these are always sides or totals too? No, I don't I don't I don't know how to do totals. They're they're lower <laughs> limit, they're more random and the one time I tried to do it, um, it was just a disaster. So I just it's not for me. Yeah. Maybe after a few more meditation retreats the mind will be <laughs> zoned in. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's say that I buy the Chicago Bulls and I hire you as my Haralabob. You're the director of basketball strategy. I don't let you do whatever you want, but I'm a big fan of DeanOnDraft.com. So I think, you know, Kate Cunningham is terrible and Trey Young is overrated and Jaron Jackson Jr.'s best is still to come. The market doesn't know about this, the like NBA season win total market or whatever. Um, let's say three months before the season starts, our win total is something. And then the day before the win, the season starts, it's something else. If you were to take over the team, do you think that, what do you think your chance of going over the, when you start and then right before the season starts? Oh man, I don't know. Um, I, I, when do I take over at the start of the prior, at the end of the prior season? Yeah, sure. Like you take over right when the season ends. So you have the off season to do what you like. Um, and then you have the season to do what you like. So depending on whether you could make the team better in the off season or during the season um, would like shift your confidence of how, if you'd be able to beat whatever the market thinks, if you'd have any hidden edge, because no one would know that Dion draft is running the team. The market would just be exactly as is, and you get to kind of operate how much better than the market. Can you make this team? Obviously it'll be random what actually happens wins and losses, but where do you, you know, where do you think you might, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough one to answer because I feel like it's just going to be such a case-by-case basis where maybe some teams, there's just not going to be that many big moves to be made over the course of an offseason. Well, let's say you take over the best possible case. Like it's uh, a team with whatever makes it the best possible case. It's but like, like you get to pick the team. I'll buy it on your behalf or you'll mm-hmm. buy it on your behalf, whatever. We've got a loan for well, it. Like it's, it's like it's a team like the Thunder who just has like a lot of draft picks and a lot of empty cap space. And there's just it's just all very fluid. Okay, so the market might be pricing those draft picks. Uh, they're able yeah, to do X good, and because you can do a little ten percent better than X, uh, you can max it at the Thunder. Yeah, um, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I would say maybe maybe sixty percent. I, I don't know. I, I believe I could help a team. Um, I I don't know how much. In what do you think the sorts of decisions that would be moving it, like which players to play and not, or which players to trade if they're not a good fit, or what I might think, be a certain decision you could make that um, would make the team better? Yeah, I mean, I think it would just be you know maybe 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 trading a player that that I believe the market overrates, or just kind of maybe signing some you know scrap heap signings, some underrated guys who you know can help us right away. Um, just, just stuff like that. But I, I don't, I don't know if maybe I could make the, depending on the situation, I might not make the biggest impact right away. And, you know, cause I, you know, me, I, I like the draft. So I would more so want to be aiming for, you know, accumulating guys who are going to, you know, provide a lot more long-term value. Yeah. Um, so it, it may not be the biggest impact right away in year one, depending on the situation. And it might be, something where like year two, year three, year four, year five, that's when, you know, my, um, uh, my ideas start to pay dividends. Do you think that if we let you be in charge of the drafting process only for a team and you have $5 million or $1 million or whatever a reasonable NBA budget is, um, on technology or salaries or whatever that you can buy to help you make better draft picks or technology or whatever it is, um, do you think you might be the best in the league at doing it or the third best or the 10th best, or where do you think you would rate amongst the professionals? If we just threw you right into the pond and gave you all what they have in terms of, you know, team and money or whatever they, ha- whatever it is they have, 
Um, do you think it'd be take you a few years to get to average or instantly be above average? How low is the bar or how high do you think you could jump? Um, I'll be instantly above average. Like, I don't think most teams are really that sharp to begin with. Um, so I think, it, I, I mean, I've been analyzing the draft since even before I had a blog and, um, I think, I think I would be good right away. Uh, I don't know if I would be necessarily the best because there are some teams that are doing some things well. Like, I don't know. I think, I think the Grizzlies draft well. Um, but I don't know. There, there are very few teams that I feel like if they make a pick, I'm going to most, most, most of the teams that they make a pick that I'm not too sure about, I'm mostly just going to think, all right, well, they're not as good drafting as I thought, as opposed to re-questioning my analysis. So, I mean, I think, I think I would be up there. I think I'd do really well. Let's say that I'm uh, one of the bottom NBA GMs listening to this podcast right now, and I believe you that you could do well, and I don't know how to do it myself. Are there one or two simple heuristics you could give for how to draft better that could make them not the worst anymore? Is it that low of a bar, or um, is it something that they would just need to know about basketball or their brains can't understand logic or are they doomed to fail forever? Yeah. I mean, I could give simple heuristics to be like not the worst drafter, like just stop drafting shooting guards. Boom. You're not the worst drafting team. Congrats. Uh, but, but, but if you want to be above average or, or high tier, yeah, you have to, you have to look at the whole picture, you know, and why are shooting guards so bad? Why shooting guards? Because it's like this awkward thing where it's like, what do they do? You know, the best, the best offensive players are always good passers and good, good, good at scoring. So shooting guards mostly are shooting guards because they're not good enough to run an offense, but they're also too small to be versatile defensive players and guard multiple positions and guard, you know, some of the bigger stars like LeBron James or Doncic or Giannis or, you know, Kawhi or guys like that. So it's sort of this, this awkward thing where, they, they, they don't really bring any unique value on either end. Or, I mean, maybe somewhat unique if they, they can score and are like, okay, at passing. Um, and also I just think, think that, um, you know, teams are just kind of wired to kind of underrate the, the, the difference between being 6'5 versus 6'7 or 6'8, which is uh, very significant for defensive purposes versus just, uh, oh yeah, this, this guy can shoot slightly better or score slightly better. So, it just seems like that's kind of the position that just happens to get overrated the most. Is it guys that are shooting guards in college as well? Or is it guys who are forced to play point guard in college that are not good enough to do it in the NBA? Um, there's normally guys who are shooting guards in college. Because if a guy can play point guard in college, he's, he might play more of a shooting guard role in the NBA, like, I don't know, Shea Gil- Gilgis Alexander, is he a shoot guard, shooting guard? Is he a point guard? Maybe like a little bit in the middle, but he was, you know, the point guard for Kentucky. So, you know, he, he naturally has that point guard ability, even if maybe Josh Giddy might officially be the point guard for that team and Shea does a little more off-ball stuff. You know, he, Shea can run an offense if, if, you know, push comes to shove. Do you think that if I'm a top high school player and I'm deciding where to go play in college, to either maximize my draft position or how good I actually am when I go into the NBA. Do you think that's a decision that matters? Or if you're a top prospect selecting between a tournament team or you know, a division one team, it doesn't really matter that you're gonna get whatever you need and it's kind of up to you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just one of those things that's it's kind of hard to say. Um... I mean, if I was a top prospect, I would definitely, you know, want to go to a major conference school because that's where, um, that's where teams like to draft from. But I mean, mid-majors get picked too. And you, you never really know, you know, what team is going to make you look better or worse. You know, like a lot of players like to go play for Kentucky because they generate a lot of, you know, NBA prospects. But also a lot of times guys, Kentucky prospects are, are value in the draft because Calipari, John Calipari doesn't maximize their goodness uh, during their college careers, so so it's a fuzzy, it's a fuzzy thing. It's not it's not the easiest thing to discern which what's going to maximize your your NBA draft position. How much does the NBA draft matter for the management of how good the team will be, as opposed to just the um, practice or moves during the season or 
coaching scheme or whatever other things might make a team win or lose? Um, What percent does the draft matter? Oh man, that's a tough question because it's, it's hard to separate from like the actual outcome versus the variance because it's like, all right, you know, you get Nikola Jokic in round two. <laughs> well, that's, that's like better than like anything you can do in free agency, any trade you can make by like, you know, multiple orders of magnitude. Right. But also why, why did Nikola Jokic go in round two? Why is that? Is he the most, um, I mean, that's the most valuable draft pick of the last 20 years or something. Probably the most valuable graphic of all time. I so, mean. what did everyone miss about? I I, don't, I actually don't really know. Is there something obvious? Like he was hurt and then ended up being fine, or it's just, it's just uh, fat shaming. They they thought he was too fat, too slow to play. Oh wow! And what did you think? You kind of have some expertise in regards to different body shapes. I actually, I actually didn't even watch him play. I just looked at his stats and I was like, wow, this guy has an amazing assist to turnover ratio for um, a seven footer. And he, he he his shooting wasn't wasn't great at that time. He's definitely hit his like shooting upside in the NBA, but he did show some basic shooting capability. So it's like, all right, well, you know, this guy can rebound, he can pass, he can shoot. Like it seems like, so, so basically my take was, it's like, all right, well, and also a lot of kind of other kind of maybe sort of doughier players who are like good passers, like Marcus Hall, Brad Miller have been overlooked in the draft too. So, um, you know, basically my take was like, this guy has outs to be the best passing big man of all time. So I rated him somewhere as like a mid first rounder um, because it seemed like, all right, well, maybe his, his lack of foot speed matters to some extent. And it's a reason to not, you know, rate him as, you know, a top five pick, but it's like, man, round two just seemed, you know, excessively harsh for somebody with his outlier strength, especially in a, in a mold that has succeeded before in the past. What do you think about, um, adding up someone's value when you draft them. So let's say you're running the team and like you, like I remember Derek Rose was on the Bulls and I think they drafted him first and he was obviously really good, but that ended up not really um, doing much, but they went to the playoffs a couple of times. He won the MVP. Um, he might be better than someone else with the same career value added up over like 20 years or something. Where do you stand on adding up all the years versus, um, peak years or peak accomplishments or MVPs or those sorts of things. What do you think? What would you be trying to find when you're drafting a player? I mean, you want a little bit of everything, you know, it's hard to predict longevity and who's going to have ups and downs. I mean, you definitely want to have, do you think that could be a potential source of edge? It seems to me like if you could uh, find some sort of physical relationship and do some sort of training day with all the guys and have your doctor take some measurements. And you know that when guys are like this, they're higher risk of injury. Is that possible? Or. I mean, I think you can just tell guys are higher risk of injury intuitively sometimes. Like, I mean, like we could Chet Holmgren, <laughs> that guy really not higher risk of injury. Like the dude is seven one one ninety five. <laughs> I mean, like how durable can, can he possibly be? Sure, but you rated Chet Holmgren like what third or something, so he's still worth it though. Well, yeah, because there's only three players in the draft, so it's like I'm not going to say his his injury likelihood is so certain. I'm going to take him take him over a vastly inferior prospect. That would just be, you know, unnecessarily hot take for from you know Dr. Dean. I'm not a doctor. Um, (laughs) You know that you still have to um, you know consider the talent and the fact that you know some guys might be injury prone, but still they're, they're healthy sometimes, or maybe they don't get injured as much as you expect. It's not that easy to predict. Um, Does the NBA but, draft market generally under or overvalue previously injured players? Would you say a guy in college or Europe or wherever who um, has had one major injury and it's causing his draft position to be a bit unusual and every preview says, well, you know, he's injured or do teams tend to get them about right with some big variance or, Draft them too soon, draft them too late? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I feel like I feel like if, like guys could get uh, underrated due to injury, but I don't know. I actually haven't thought that much about it. I don't have any strong examples off the top of my mind. Like Michael Porter, Porter Jr. is a guy who slid too far because of injuries. But now, you know, maybe it's like, well, maybe the Nuggets might, if he can't get healthy soon, like maybe he, the Nuggets end up paying him a lot of money. Uh 
for a time where maybe his, uh, you know, health is kind of sporadic and he's not that reliable. So uh, we'll see. A, a lot of times it's, I don't know, injuries are weird. Like there's players like Zidrunis Olgowskis who had like terrible injuries for his first few years in his career. And then he played 82 games a bunch of the times. It's weird. They're, they're, they're hard to predict. Um, so I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion on that. Okay, how about um, in the Dean draft era, since I think since 2014, since you've been posting online, who would you consider um, off the top of your meditated intuition the biggest lottery bust? Uh, I've got like a sheet of all the top lottery guys. I'm just curious who you would consider. <sighs> That's a hard question because it depends on your definition of bust. Well, so a define people, bust, I guess. So, 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 so this was a year before I did it, but let's just say for the sake of argument, a lot of people want to say Anthony Bennett's a huge bust. But how much of a bust was he really? Because he was, first of all, it was a terrible draft for nobody. There wasn't really any true number one overall pick. Second of all, he was supposed to go like number eight. And it was like the most random basement vaulting decision that he went number one overall. And even after he went number one overall, nobody really expected that much of him. So yeah, he was a bust. But, you know, is he as big of a bust as Darko Milicic, who went number two and had massive expectations on him? I don't think so. So I still do think it... it needs to be relative to kind of consensus expectations. So uh, I guess, you know, if we're just kind of running through it, the first draft I did, Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. And Jabari Parker is a pretty good candidate because that guy had very high expectations. He's just been terrible. Yeah. Um, since Nick Stauskas too. Seems like he's had a pretty poor career, but he was picked well, eight, so that's pretty like, late. What, like an eighth overall pick. Yeah. Like, so when so when do you draw the line? Like only the, t- the top three are where it really matters, and that's the goal of the draft is getting one of the one of the few really good players that's going to come through this decade of drafts. You well, want to get on your team. Well, well, I mean, in terms of drafting, you want to get you know whatever useful players you can, or the most useful player you can at your spot. But if you're talking like biggest bust, and it's like all right, well, well Javari Parker is a zero, and Nick Stauskas yeah. is a zero, but one guy had much more hype and much more. Sure. <laughs> you know, Javari Parker is a bigger bust. Sure. What about um? Hmm, who else we got here? So uh, I don't know. Josh Jackson, Dragon Bender. Uh, I guess he's four. Yeah, those guys. Those guys. Those guys are big best. Those guys had lower expectations for me. Dragon Bender. I was high on him, but it was for really dumb reasons. He just had a really like amazing like six or seven game sample as U18 when he was 16 years old. But the thing I kind of neglected to realize is that he was trash ever since then. So <laughs> I think I probably, you know, I think if there's Dragon Bender was in like the, the 2023 draft, I probably would have not been so high on him. Uh, Josh Jackson. Markel Fultz? He seems oh, yeah, Markel like- Fultz is a really big bust too. Uh, that, that's a good one. Uh, that, that was kind that was of known in advance or what was he, he was in a weak draft class? No, that was a good draft class. Uh, I actually thought Marco Fultz was like a pretty good prospect. I mean, I had my doubts about him. I didn't have him as number one. I had him as number two. So what happened to him? Is there anything that we could have known back then that would have tipped us off? Or is anything you now know for future drafts or just kind of didn't work for some reason? I think it's something that's hard to predict. One thing that could have maybe tipped us off is that the fact that his team was terrible. They were like the number one. team? Yes, college team. It was like, and he had Matisse Thibault too. Matisse Thibault was was a sophomore on that team. So it's like, it's not... It's like, yeah, they they, had, they they were bad, but it still wasn't like – it's like he had somebody on his team. And uh, they were the number 163 Ken Palm team. And <laughs> it's just like, man, how are you that bad? And yeah, granted, he was young. Uh, th- th- there, there were a lot of issues. You know, he had he was um, only shot 65% on free throws, and he was very dependent on jump shooting. Uh, he scored a lot, but, you know, he shot over 40% from three, which was obviously not indicative of his shooting. Um and uh, he also made a lot of mid-range shots. So it's like, all right, well, if this guy's making a lot of shots off the dribble from all over the court, but he can't even make free throws consistently, and he's not getting into the rim that much, like how reliable is he in that regard? Um, if his team is terrible, and he's the leading scorer, the leading passer, doing all this stuff, like, well, maybe he's there's a lot of flaws there. And then I, I think kind of the invisible thing is that I heard about afterwards is it just seemed like he had a very weird relationship with his parents and might've gotten some bad nurture from them, which made him, you know, less mentally stable. And he got some bad coaching from some shoot, some alleged shooting coach who had him like shooting off his shoot, trying to shoot 
while lying down and random stuff like that, <laughs> shooting even worse. So th- there were definitely some red flags technically, but it seemed like also personally, there were some other red flags that just had everything just turn into a total disaster. If there was some shooting coach that, or maybe there currently is, um, that was supposed to be good or was making players better at shooting and a draft prospect uh, had hired him versus had not, and both had been about the same in your eyes before the decision, would you consider them about the same after? Or can, is that the sort of thing that might matter? Or what are the sorts of things that like a player who's predicted to go in the mid-first round or late-first round or not going to have a huge impact are there sorts of things he might be able to moneyball his way and become a good player or become better than expected or not really? Um, I don't know. Uh, I haven't really thought about it too much. I, I would say that as far as I know, um, well, I mean, between impressing NBA teams, it seems like just doing stuff like interviewing and working out well is pretty important in terms of actually changing their EV. I mean, I think it's really hard to just completely change your EV between like the end of a college season and um, the draft process. So there'd be nothing that would convince me, but maybe they could do certain things to convince NBA teams. Like, I don't know, NBA teams, they love to get excited over kids who give really good interviews, even if they're like very marginal talents. So um, probably try to really coach up a kid on that if I wanted to get them drafted high. But there must be something the kid can do to make themselves better at basketball itself, right? Because the people who end up being good in five years are going to be whoever's just the best at basketball, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, these kids are always working on their game. And it's and if they improve, like, how do, how do you know they improve? Like, how do you prove that? It's hard to say. How do you take into account someone like James Harden, who has reportedly not been working as hard on his game? Or do you think that that's a real effect that someone who's as good at him that was trying might end up better or is that something that might impact that in some way Harden is not working hard on his game the guy has improved every year of his career like i i i feel like james harden he's he's a weird guy who knows what exactly is going on behind the scenes um he's he's a strange guy but it it seems like he has a propensity to spend a lot of times at strip clubs it seems like he might take to a slightly different beat than everybody else but at least, at least during his younger years, he had to be working on his game. I, I don't believe he was just a guy who was just kind of like, eh, you know, not really trying too hard and just shows up and is just naturally an MVP candidate. Um, I think, you know, maybe his work ethic might, might have declined in recent years a, a little bit after he's kind of already established and made all his money. Um, but... I think it's hard to really buy completely that he was a lackadaisical worker for his whole career. Yeah. Um, but there, maybe there's someone who is, although it probably would just show up on, on court, um, any productivity, but yeah. for a younger player, it could be something, there could be some measurable of, is this player going to continue improving or are they gonna, um, yeah. You know, not sure. Well, from what I understand, that's it seems like intelligence is never really as cut and dry as you think where coaches like either, yeah, like this guy is like like an, like an, a super hard worker or a decent worker or a terrible worker. There's always like shades of gray, like, oh, this kid uh, doesn't really like practicing, but he loves to play. Or this guy, kid does, you know, is always working on his game, but he doesn't like spending time in the weight room. Or, you, you know, there's always like different shades of gray. Or sometimes maybe teams might just say, bad things about a player like uh i think like the washington program was like blasting Jaden mcdaniel dick mcdaniels is like oh yeah this guy didn't do a good job this this, and that and causing the slide in the draft and i think part of it just turned out that they kind of wanted to save face because they didn't do that well with him as compared to expectations so part of it was just their own ego just kind of you know laying the blame on him it's like oh we didn't maximize his potential so it's his fault it's not ours so um yeah getting that sort of intelligence is very difficult to get it very cleanly and accurately does it matter for different players what they should be practicing at to best improve themselves? Or would everyone benefit from watching film and say running or weight room? What do you think are like the, you know, money ball areas for player improvement, things to work on during the day, just whatever makes you better or whatever you're working on, or you would know it by now. Well, I, I, I don't really have experience coaching kids like that, but if I was going to try, I would just say everything, everything always matters. You want to, 
you know, you want to be as well-rounded as possible, as few weaknesses as possible, and also for your strength as much as possible. And there's not really, it's hard to really say that there's kind of one thing that weighs heavier, like in all aspects of life, everything matters. Yeah. If you were to coach a college basketball team, if we were to fire the coach of um, UNC Wilmington and install you starting today, effective today, do you think that you would be able to do and, con- or well, I don't know how good the UNC Wilmington's coach is, but we'll, we're installing you on an average team. Would you be about the same as they are? Or do those coaches, I mean, they're professionals who have been doing it for decades. Are they good enough during practice or the players respect them? Um, is that a real effect to where a random intelligent bystander would be worse? Or do you think that um, like NBA GMs, you would also be an above average basketball coach? Because it's a hard question to settle, but there's I would be, an answer. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'd be below average. Um, uh, or maybe, maybe, maybe uh, I, I would have to be below average, I would say, because I, I can identify tar- talent and I can target talent, but I still don't spend that much time thinking about technical stuff and technically how to coach kids, how to communicate with kids. Um, I still don't think like about like what sort of sets I would run. I mean, I could, I could figure a lot of stuff out. I feel like, if, I feel like if I like committed myself to learning how to coach, I, yeah, I could maybe be really good at it, but there's just so much stuff to actual coaching and actually communicating and teaching technicals and all this stuff that goes beyond just identifying talent. So being a GM is easy because you're just saying this guy's good. That guy's not good. Or, and, you know, you're just calculating EVs in college coaching there's some aspect of calculating EVs and player selection, but there's so much more elements beyond that, that um, right now I would be below average. If I could maybe become good, if I really committed myself to, to developing my ability to do all that other stuff well, but right now I would be probably very bad at it. Cause most of these guys also have like a lot of coach, assistant coaching experience. They're working with other programs. They know how to communicate with kids. So even if they, they don't, have the best, you know, mathematical ability to, to discern talent and stuff. They're still going to have a basic idea how to coach. And what about being the GM of a college program where you can select the coaches that you want? Is that a source of edge or is it mainly just whatever good players happen to sign for the college? Um, well, I mean, I guess they don't really have GMs, more like an athletic director. I mean, I think if I could like work with a college coach, I think that would be a lot of fun. If, if or I could work with the program, if I could like be like, all right, this is, if you're, if Kentucky like fires Sean Calipari and I'm like, they're like, all right, you know, you get to pick the coach, you get to work with them. So what players you pick and all this stuff. Yeah. I think that would be great. So what would be an example recommendation? Like, Hey, you're playing this player way too much. He sucks. Is it mostly that's where they go wrong playing guys that suck or. Uh, no, I I would still mostly just want to, well, yeah, I mean, some coaches play play guys who suck too much. Most of the good coaches though are going to not have too much weakness in their rotation. Um, I would just work with them to, to kind of just be like, all right, you know, these are the players we, we should target in recruiting. You know, like here's a guy who seems like he's undervalued. Uh, you know, he's available based on, you know, our recruiting pedigree. We should look into recruiting him because he could help our team a lot. And that would be how I think I could help. And then the other way is just pick, picking, picking a guy who can coach because I feel like, you know, every year there's so many new coaches and just half the hires right off the bat. I'm like, this hire is terrible. Yeah. And what, what makes you say that? Like they just old guy who doesn't have well, any I mean, like a lot of guys. Yeah. A lot of guys are just kind of been around the block and the retreats yeah. and they're just don't, they've just been mediocre or worse at, at every stop. And they just keep getting opportunities. Who are the sorts of coaches um, for this year that you would expect to do better than uh, the market will have them or whatever, better than expectations um, of any coach? Um, I mean, I think the coaches who it's normally coaches who have been doing better than the market, you know, it seems okay. like so it's something crazy. that's consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is something about like the NBA where it was like, you know, Greg Popovich had just consistently beaten the spread for, for so long. And even people knew he was a good coach. They still managed to underestimate uh, him because they're still focused more on what they want to focus on is you know who, who has the best talent um and so i think coaching is always prone to getting uh, a little bit underrated even once it's it's proven 
Yeah. Yeah, it's hard 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 to know what to measure for um and that sort of thing. I mean, maybe you could even measure how well they do uh, versus spread on average, the coach. Um Yeah, yeah, for for, for for me, I just like to look at, you know, who 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 goes well compared to my EVs, who overperforms my EVs, who underperforms my EVs. The coaches that are always uh, overperforming, they're bueno. The ones who aren't, they go in the fade pile. <laughs> Do you ever bet uh, futures in college basketball? Like you have a good idea on some team might be way better, so you get a bunch of title odds on them or something? Yeah, uh, I do that um, from time to time. I always like to have a few future sweats going on. Actually, I had, a, I had a really good one the COVID year. I got San Diego State to win it all. I think it was like 601 odds or something. Ridiculous. And then they were the number six Ken Palm seed. They were the, two, the number six Ken Palm team in the country. They were the two seed in the tournament and then COVID hit. I didn't have that much. I think I got like, it was on Bet Chris, and I think I got like two fifty dollars bullets to win 30k each so it was like 100 100 to win 60k yeah so that, that could have been a pretty fun sweat but never happened yeah <laughs> do you bet during the tournament as well or what's the breakdown of your betting by month during the season um yeah i bet during the tournament but i kind of even though the tournament has more fish money and a lot of times you like odds lines will just be like blatantly like two or three points inflated because it's just this is the fish team that the fish want to bet. Uh, I still feel like I find more edge in November and December. So, who uh, do you think the fish are in, in this instance? Like, who are who are these people? Just random, just just, just whatever casual local, fans, or? just just whatever casual fans who, who don't really follow college basketball that closely, and then it's the tournament, and they want to watch the tournament. They want to have action. They want to have action on the, the teams that everybody's talking about, who have NBA prospects or whatever, and they're just gonna you know throw down. Yeah. And that influences the market, you think, but only in March? Are you in conference tournaments too? No, not really conference tournaments. I don't think that gets as much hype. Like think about like whatever average person you know, they're 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 waiting for the bracket to come out. Could you potentially um do the same thing you do in college basketball and NBA in college football and NFL if you thought about trying to start watching NFL or you like, you got any sports incubating right now or something? No, man. Football doesn't make sense to me. The ball isn't even round. How can you predict where it's going to go? Well, <laughs> oh, how about baseball then or tennis? No, I actually, actually, I, I, I probably could do football a little bit better because I did watch football at, at a young age and um, I have made a couple college football bets in my life. And I probably, if I really committed myself. I probably could be a decent college football better, but it's not worth the effort because I just don't spend as much time and I don't have the intuition as basketball. So it would just be a lot of effort for a much lower ROI that also overlaps with basketball season and basketball prep. And it probably, even if I become slightly plus EV in college football, it might be, be outweighed by the lower amounts of EV I have in college basketball and be more time. So for me, I'm happy with college basketball going hard in November, December, then just having MMA as kind of my casual kind of fun like year-round off-season stuff that's, that's pretty low effort, low investment, and just kind of wait to see if there's something that seems like a good opportunity. Yeah, makes sense. So are you nervous for the basketball season? Is it like, I hope that my stuff is good, or are you feeling pretty confident? I'm confident. I've been doing this for a while. Um, thinking pretty clearly. Um, I, I'm just feel like I, I'm really going to dominate this year. <laughs> when you're betting stuff, is it... Um... Do you, do you avoid stuff at post, say? Like, you know, when stuff goes really wild in the last 20 minutes as the lineups get finalized and right as the bet goes off, are you ever making any bets in that period? Or are you just looking and watching the good numbers you bet go away? Or what's happening, like, right before the game start? Before the game start? Um, it depends. Um, it depends if I feel like I, I already made all the bets I wanted to make and I want to relax versus there, there's some bets where I'm just like, I'm just going to wait. And just wait till wait till the buzzer and see what the odds are at the buzzer. Sometimes you get the best odds at the buzzer. Sometimes, you know, these lines just drift, 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 drift all day, and you're just better waiting till the buzzer to pick them up. So, for me, it just depends if there's like any. Maybe I'll have like a game or two that I want to keep my eye on and be like, all right, well, I'm just gonna. I, I don't think it's urgent. I don't think I need to get action, but I'm gonna see what the odds are at the buzzer, and I'll just kind of check out, check out, check those odds and decide if I want to hit it or not. 
are you watching the games that you bet on and like screaming at what's happening and really sweating them or whatever are you zenin zonin um i'm not i would say so, somewhere in the middle you know i'm not really you know screaming and get, get, getting intense i'm just kind of watching and observing um I don't know. So sometimes, sometimes I'll, I'll sweat them a little bit, but I try. I try not to sweat too much. I try to just observe, and I'm at my best. I'm just observing and just kind of processing everything and being like, just sort of looking at it through the lens. And it's like, all right, well, you know, like, oh, all right, well, this is kind of one of the points I like to bet on. This is kind of manifesting this other thing. And maybe I underrated this point. So I'm kind of just like recalculating, kind of checking my work as I'm watching the games mentally most of the time. And then that kind of determines, I, I get a feel for, you know, how accurate do I think I was, whether I think it was a good bet and then whether I want to add more at halftime or maybe if I'm, a bet's going well and maybe I, I beat the closing line and a bet's going well, but I'm still like, eh, you know, I might've been pushing kind of a small edge. I might actually bet the other side on halftime and take off some risk. Yeah. All right. Um, what else should I, uh ask here i don't know i don't really i can't really think of anything else um yeah i feel like i haven't really done any prep for college basketball this season so i'll have to but i do things a bit differently than you it sounds like your way sounds uh intriguing though yeah well it's not something that can be easily replicated <laughs> you were like replicating the mind of dean yeah difficult. unless unless you are like me and you're like thinking about statistics when you're 13 years old while also watching the games a lot and also still looking at the gambling lines at that age and just just something I thought about for 10 years probably. How do you pick how much to bet on the games? Is it like you got big, medium, small sizes or just bet the same on everything or just whatever feels best? Just take whatever's available for the most part. Oh, I guess I guess sometimes if there's like, if I'm like kind of on the fence, I might just be like, hey, I'll just maybe uh you know not map mac just max bet at like bookmaker instead of like max back betting on every site uh but for for, for for most of the for the most part i just try to look for, for really big edges and just try to get as much down as i can anywhere and just take every dollar i can sounds like a good strategy <laughs> yeah it works cool all right awesome thanks for uh thanks for coming on dean and uh talk to you later yeah, it's been nice chatting. I had a good time. Thanks for having me. All right. See ya.